1: To the Wings
0: Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood, and this is another of the Great Escapes episodes. So I'd like to welcome Sean Singleton Turner. How are you going?
1: Good, thanks, Dave.
0: Uh, Now, you or were a a Royal Australian Air Force pilot uh, on exchange in New Zealand. uh, That's correct. With the Royal New Zealand Air Force. Um, But can we go back a little bit and just find out your background? Uh, Where where were you born? Where did you grow up? and, And how did you get into aviation? Sure.
1: Well, I was actually born in England, but I was only five. I just started going to school when our family moved to Australia okay part of the old 10 pound pom program back in the late 60s all right and mum, dad and my brother settled in sydney and that's where i basically grew up and did all my schooling and i got all the interest in aviation from my father who was an aeronautical engineer okay and a a wannabe pilot but it never quite worked out that way until much later in his life but that's another story and so i finished school at the end of 1981 and started pilot's course with the RAF in August, 1982.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, so where was your dad working as a, as an engineer?
1: Well, in the UK, he worked for Rolls-Royce right? and I think Hawker Siddeley at one stage, um, but he ended up spending most of his working life in Australia, certainly with Caltex, the fuel company in charge of their aviation operations.
0: Oh, right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So so uh, you joined the RWF in uh, 1982. And uh, h- how long was your training for?
1: So it was about six weeks of officer training or whatever. And then we did 60 odd hours on the CT4, similar mm-hmm. to what the Kiwis had. Yep. And that finished in, I think it was around Easter, 83 and then we went over to pierce which is on the outskirts of perth in western australia and did i think it was about 180 ish hours on the mackey it was the advanced training so i finished that in december of 83 so it's just under 18 months total okay
0: okay and uh, so what was your first um, operational posting
1: so I was posted to 36 Squadron, which is in Richmond on the outskirts of Sydney, a transport squadron flying the H-Model Hercules. Okay. And spent just under four years there before I was posted to Flying Instructors course, which was held down at East Sale, which is in eastern Victoria, about two hours east of Melbourne. Yeah. And that was to fly to Mackie, so that was a four-month course. And at the completion of that, we moved to Perth, which is where the number two flying training school is which is the equivalent of the training flight of 14 Squadron at Ahakia. It's where the advanced pilot training is. Yep. And I spent three years as an instructor there before getting the exchange posting to Ahakia.
0: Oh, right. Okay. So um, tell me, how did the exchange come up? Were, were you told you were going or did you apply for it?
1: I applied for it. So I knew my time at Pierce was coming to an end. In fact, three years was quite a long time to spend there. Yep. And I didn't really want to go back to the Herc Squadron. I had a great time while I was there, but didn't want to end up as an instructor there so sort of put in applications for the various exchange postings and because uh, we had one with the USAF and one with the RAF as well and yeah. I found out that I got the Kiwi one so it was good.
0: Okay cool um, so moving to Ohakia was, was that a was it much the same as being in the on an Australian base in, in the Australian Air Force or was it quite different
1: Uh, It was quite different being a much smaller outfit. It was, uh, it felt a bit more like a family, or uh, I don't want to say flying club to make it sound like it wasn't serious because that's not the case at all. But it it just had a friendlier sort of feel to it. And we all lived on base at Ahakia, or majority of the people. So it was a great atmosphere and we had a great time over there. We were there November 1990, we moved over there and we left in the middle of 93. Oh, right, so
0: it was a very long uh, exchange, really, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, two and a half years, yeah.
0: Wow, okay. So you had, obviously, quite a long uh, time before the accident where you would have been flying the strike Masters. You would have been quite a,
1: uh,
0: an adept strike Master pilot by then.
1: Oh, I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and I was also lucky that during that time, the New Zealand Air Force was introducing the Mackie 339. Mm, So I was involved with that with Jim Rankin, who was one of the Kiwi instructors there. And he and I were basically doing all the groundwork to introduce that to the training flight side of 14 Squadron. The Ops Flight guys has had it for a little while, doing their fighter intro training on it. But uh, Jim and I were involved with the Mackie side of it for training flight.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, Jim's still in the Air Force, by the way, and still at a hack here as an instructor. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> he flies the Avenger now with the uh, Heritage flight as well.
1: Grumman Avenger. Oh, right. Yeah, I'd be good to catch up with him one day. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, now, I seem to recall you might have been one of the Strike Master pilots that took a Strike Master down to Wanaka for the 92 air show. Is that correct?
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. We didn't actually fly a display in it. But uh, we had it there as a static display. The,
0: there wasn't there was the other one that did display there, wasn't it? With was it Mike Longstaff that flew one?
1: Uh, quite possibly. It was because I remember years ago, stretching yeah. the memory banks. I, yeah, I remember the... it quite
0: vividly because it was actually oh, an right. amazing display. It was a fantastic display.
1: Glad he can't hear that. Now, he was <laughs> the Air Force Exchange officer at a half year at the time. Yeah. Right, right.
0: Yeah, no, that was that was when because I, I was in the air force at the time and and I was down there right. with, uh, with the um, air trainers and we were just standing there going, "Wow, I've never seen a Strike Master flown like this before." So it was
1: yeah. pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, it was a great show. I'd love like to go back there one day.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, so would I. We it should have been last weekend, but it keeps getting cancelled.
1: Ah, because of COVID. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah,
0: unfortunately, maybe maybe next time. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. You, what did you? How did you um, feel about the the transition from the originally you were on the Mackie three two six and and then the, you've got the Strike Master and then you go into the three three nine. Um, what did you think about the comparison between the the types?
1: Well, the three two six was a nice aeroplane to fly. It really was, but it was getting pretty old. Yeah. And the Strike Master, that was a different machine. <laughs> Definite old vintage English technology. Yeah. But the funny thing, it had a bit more thrust than the old 326. So It was actually quicker off the mark, but then it's slightly less aerodynamic shape took over. <laughs> it <laughs> turned into a bit of a slug compared to the, the old Mackie. Yeah. And the 339 was another step up again. It had So the 326 had roughly 2,500 pounds of thrust. The Strike Master about 3,500. And the 339 was about 4,500. Okay. And so the 339 was a beautiful airplane to fly. Uh, for a start, the back seat was raised up above the front seat, unlike the 326, so you could actually see out of it from the back a lot easier. Yeah. And it had hydraulically-assisted ailerons, which made it much easier to control at high speed. It was a nice machine.
0: Okay. So were you converting uh, existing jet pilots onto the 339 um, in, that, in that unit? Were you sort of Converting them over from the strike master, or the instructors and stuff like that.
1: Uh, yep, and was also involved with the first pilot course. The actual cadets that were going through at the time. Okay,
0: yep, yep. Yeah. Right, that must have been quite actually pretty neat for those first ones to go through. And meet. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, they oh, were right. very happy. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so how did how did the event that we were going to talk about with the ejection? How did that Come about. Can you walk me through it?
1: Yeah, sure. So that was in October 92. So I'd been there a bit under two years. Yeah. And by default, as an exchange guy, as you said, I'd three years flying the Mackey at Pierce and then a couple of years in New Zealand on the strike master. You're one of the more experienced guys with that sort of aeroplane. And so they give you the chance to be what they call a maintenance test pilot, which is nothing like being a test pilot, you know, Edwards or any of those places. Yeah. But when aeroplanes come out of maintenance in the hangar, they give it to one of the more experienced guys to run it through its paces and just write down some basic performance figures on a performer and make sure it's behaving as it should do. Yeah. So myself and, uh, in fact, Mike Longstaff might have been one of the others and perhaps I think one of the Kiwi guys as well, but I don't remember who that was. Yeah. So i have been doing that for a little while. And I'd also been flying the Mackie at the same time at Ahakia for, again, I can't remember the exact dates, but let's say three or four months. And i would probably yeah. spent more time flying the Mackie than the Strike Master in the couple of months leading up to the incident, yeah. accident, <laughs> whatever you want yeah. to call it. Um, and I just got back to work from lunch one day, actually, and they'd had a... Strike Master that had just come out of some maintenance, and they wanted a test flight on it because they wanted to use it for a student sortie that afternoon. And the history behind the maintenance was that it was either a week or two weeks before. Again, I can't remember exactly the time frame. The aircraft had been up on what they call a general handling sortie yep. with an instructor and a pilot's course student, and that sort of sortie involves flying some circuits, probably a bit of low flying some aerobatics, maybe some stalling and spinning. And they put it into a spin. And it's supposed to be recovered by 10,000 feet or eject. And that's the limitation of the ejection seat. And for whatever reason, the aircraft didn't recover from the spin. And instead of ejecting, they stayed with it. And eventually it recovered. And they pulled out of it at about 3,000 feet, I think, from memory and sort of came back to base very white and shaken up and, and whatever. <laughs> Wow. And so, again, I don't know the full maintenance history of what happened between then and when I took it flying, but I believe they did some later on rigging checks and whatever else the airframe guys did to try and figure out why it had this spinning problem. And I was doing the test flight on it after that. So, I took it up and uh, ran it through its paces. And again, I can't remember it, the exact... Uh, profile of the flight but you basically go pretty fast go pretty slow do some turns do some stalls record the speeds it's stalling at and make sure it's handling okay and it was all going fine yeah and then I climbed up to uh, somewhere probably around 24 25000 feet and put it into a spin and started the recovery at probably 20,000 feet roughly and so the short story first, we can go into it in more detail if you like, but the short story is it didn't come out of the spin and going through 10,000 feet, I ejected. Right. So, yeah, so that's the short story. Yeah. Um, the handling characteristics of the Strike Master in the flight manual or the operations manual, whatever you like to call it, it's a standard spin recovery. And I'd listened to one of your previous podcasts with the fella from the Venom up in Singapore or or oh, yes. whatever it was. Yep. Standard spin recovery is identify direction of turn, opposite rudder, stick forward. The thing should come out of the spin after four turns. Well, it didn't. So I went back to the control neutral position just to make sure that I did, the spin direction was correct, which it should have been because I put it into the spin. It wasn't an accidental thing where I was disorientated. Yeah, yeah. And uh, went through the same procedures, and after four turns, it was still a really stable spin. And so then I tried just letting go, because in a Mackie, if you let go, it basically recovers itself. It's a very nice behaving aeroplane. Yep. And the controls all went full pro spin, which I thought was a bit disconcerting. And you know, it got a pretty high rate of descent. Was, I think the book figures were about 15,000 foot a minute rate of descent. And all this is occurring between sort of 20,000 and 10,000 feet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I tried just jerking the controls around and, you know, if you had a random control inputs and thinking at the time, this isn't looking good. And i probably somewhere around 11,000 feet put out a MODA call. And a last quick glance at the altimeter it was 9,700 feet when I pulled the handle. So
0: bloody hell. Mm.
1: Wow.
0: So do you have any idea how many spins you've done, how many rotations around about? Uh,
1: well, so there was the four that I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. And then there was the probably a couple while I was reconfirming everything, then another four where I thought it would happen. Uh, let's say a dozen roughly, between 12 15, probably somewhere around there. But I wasn't actually counting them. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Uh, did you start to get disoriented? Did, did it like was a spin effect no not or? really
1: it was um, I mean to the uninitiated it probably feels quite violent, but it was a very stable sort of a spin it was quite nose low the speed stabilises it around I think from memory 160 something knots quite nose low and I think you're doing basically a 360 roll if you like on every couple of seconds I think it is roughly right. again it's a long time since I flew something like that yeah <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> But no, that wasn't the issue. Disorientation wasn't the problem.
0: Okay. okay. So the whole, uh, through the whole process, you're quite calm and collected and just working through
1: what to do? <laughs> Maybe or... on the outside. On the inside, <laughs> I <it> probably wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the first part of it, yeah, but, uh, yeah, you didn't have time to really sort of panic about it. You're just trying to make it work, you know, yeah. and then it's only those last few seconds where you're going up Bloody hell! (laughs) This isn't looking too good. Yeah, so So, it was the old uh, head back and pull the handle.
0: And what happened then? What was the the sort of feeling that went through you? And
1: right. So I used the. There's two handles on the ejection seat. There's one at the sort of head level above your head, and one in the seat pan just between your legs. Yeah. So I used the one between my legs. So it's just sitting. As upright as you can with your head back against the seat and pull the handle and there's a detonation cord through the canopy which explodes the canopy just before the seat fires so, yeah. and i remember hearing a bang of the canopy exploding and then i don't remember anything until the jolt of the parachute opening which is only i think it's a second and a half from memory later yeah but just the g forces involved with the seat firing you know you black out and Come to when it's all over. But I remember thinking it's amazing how quickly you go from being relatively snug, albeit in a not very good environment at that time, to dangling in mid-air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. And I guess it was yeah. suddenly very quiet as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So like I said, I remember the jolt of the chute opening and the seat had fallen away at about that time. And just sort of looking around going, wow. So probably swore to myself a few times. I didn't actually see the aircraft hit, but it was, I sort of fire just afterwards. Yeah. And then, of course, you're starting to think, oh, crikey, am I going to land in that? It was over the, I think the mountain range is called the Ruahine. It's just east of Ahakia, probably 30-odd miles east or southeast of Ahakia. Yep. A quite hilly sheep country, of course, being New Zealand farming country. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was on quite a steep hill where the aircraft ended up crashing and there was just a little bit of a breeze blew me just over the ridgeline onto the other side of the hill. And so I'd never been parachuting before, like most of us, but they teach you the drills to go through if you find yourself in that situation. And sort of went through all those and it all seemed to work out all right. But then I was thinking to myself, I probably should start thinking about the landing as I landed. <laughs> so I sort of, as I say, on quite a steep hill. And my feet slid out from under me and I sort of landed on my bum a bit and slid down the hill for a while, which probably didn't help the back situation. Yeah. But, you know, with adrenaline and everything, you don't really feel any pain at the time. And, yeah, sort of ended up coming to a skidding halt on the side of this hill. Right. Yeah.
0: Wow. And um, was there anyone around? Did anyone actually see it happen?
1: Well, yeah, actually, the, there was two farmers out and about on quad bikes, and they heard the bang, bang of the canopy and the seat going yeah, and looked up and saw the aircraft tumbling and then the parachute deploying. So they got to where I was not long after I landed, actually.
0: All
1: right. And a little funny story, the seat pack that we sit on, on those Ejection seats doubles as a life raft if you happen to end up in the water. Yep. And so the farmer, they were both lovely guys, he came up and said, Oh, you're all right. So, yeah, I think so. And I was starting to gather up the parachute and all that sort of thing. And he said, Can I give you a hand with anything? I said, Yeah, that'd be great. And he went to reach for the seat pack by the handle. And I was trying to say, No, not by that. And as he lifted (laughs) it, it into a life raft. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and then I was in quite a steep, a uh, little gully or small valley, I suppose. And Ahaki didn't have any rescue choppers. Like most of the Australian fast jet bases, they have dedicated SAR choppers. Yep. And I was thinking, I don't know how anyone's going to get to me out here. And the farmer said, do you want to lift to the farmhouse? So I jumped on the back of his quad bike, which again, in hindsight, with possible back injuries might not have been the smartest move. But right. you know, at the time, it seemed like a good idea. And it was a few minutes, can't remember exactly how far back to their house and um, went into the, the house and tried to ring the base just to let them know I was alright, in the meantime a Skyhawk came whizzing over the top because <laughs> obviously I put out a Mayday call and the air traffickers sent him over to, to where I was yep. and of course after an accident they shut down the switchboard so I couldn't get on to anyone but I remembered the direct dial number into the control tower so I rang the control tower and Talk to my controllers just let them know I was all right and let them know where I actually was yeah and then a chopper Julie arrived I think it was the Westpac chopper from Palmerston North
0: right
1: came out and picked me up and took me back to Harkia
0: so how how badly injured were you or were you injured at all
1: well at the time I just yeah you know, immediately after when you get back to the base I take you into the medical section had a little bit of bruising around the groin and shoulder areas just from the seat harnesses from the ejection itself and the opening of the chute. Yeah. And I had a few cuts on my face from the detonation cord that goes through the canopy. It's basically like gunpowder, I think, that runs through tubes in the canopy.
0: Yeah.
1: And in the few exposed areas on your face between the visor and the mask, there's a few little burns from that. Nothing major. And I felt a bit stiff and sore, like you just played a really good game of rugby. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. Um And I was sent off for x-rays that afternoon at the Palmerston North Hospital. It didn't really come back with anything, but I was still pretty sore in the back after a few days. So I went and did some, I think they call them CT scans or blood scans, and it picked up a few compression fractures in the lower vertebrae around L2 and L3.
0: All right. Okay. So has that given you much trouble since?
1: It did for a while. Um, cause I was given some physio exercises but after a couple of years, even flying back in Australia afterwards I was getting quite a lot of sciatic pain out of it yeah. and the Air Force didn't believe in chiropractors at the time but a mate who'd been through a, through a similar incident in a different aircraft said, mate, just go and pay and see a chiropractor yeah. and after a few visits it fixed it almost oh, instantaneously. Right. So there's a good plug for chiropractors as well. Yeah,
0: well, that's interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I have ongoing chiropractic care. Yeah. Not a lot. It doesn't give me too much grief. It could be old age these days, who knows? But, uh... <laughs> yeah. right.
0: um, so obviously, uh, there would have been an investigation into what actually happened to the aircraft, why it never came out of the spin.
1: Yeah, and it's quite interesting. There's a lot of things came into it. In aircraft accident investigation, they talk about the Swiss cheese model where all the holes in the cheese have to line up for an accident to actually end up occurring. Yeah. So probably the first one in those was at that time at the squadron, and I I guess in the New Zealand Air Force in general, but I don't know, you could self-authorise, or certainly QFI's, the qualified flying instructors, could self-authorise flights. So I didn't had to go to my flight commander or co to get authority to do the test flight yeah and that probably wasn't real smart considering i'd been spending more time flying to mackie and again i can't remember exactly but it was probably three or four weeks since i flew a strike master okay so you know is doing a maintenance test flight the best idea then i don't think it would have had a difference in the outcome but who knows so that was one procedure that got changed as a result of the court of inquiry. Yeah. Um, another is that there's a... F- the fuel's all in the wings in a Strike Master, whereas in a Mackie, it's all in the fuselage. So when you're spinning, there's a difference in the aerodynamics to do with gyroscopic-type properties from having all the weight outboard in the wings. Ah, uh, right, yeah. Consequently, yeah. there's a fuel load limit for spinning, which from memory, was, I think, 1,600 pounds, so basically 800 pounds in each wing.
0: Yeah.
1: And you had to record the fuel levels on this performer on your knee pad before you went into the spin. And as I was lying in the chopper on the way back, thinking, bloody hell, what happens?" Sorry about the bloodies in there. But, um, <laughs> That's right. That's right. right. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure I remembered writing down sort of 850 in one wing and 870 in the other. And in hindsight, obviously, that's over the 1,600-pound limit. Yeah. So, again, whether that was a major cause or, you know, probably didn't help matters, but then again, it probably wasn't the major factor. And one of the things that came out of the inquiry was how did they come up with that limiting fuel figure in the first place? Mm-hmm. And the inquiry looked back historically, and when they first were certifying the aeroplane, if that's the right word in military parlance, <laughs> Um, the turf pilots basically put in a few hundred pounds, spin it, yep, it's okay, and keep adding fuel until it gets kind of marginal. And then they say, right, oh, that's the limit. And they looked at other air forces, not that there were too many around the world that flew Strike Masters, but the Singaporeans had lost a couple in spinning accidents as well. Yep. And they'd actually reduced that figure down to 1,400 pounds. So maybe, you know, there was some handling concerns with the aircraft, with those sort of fuel things in them. Um, And again, that's one of those with the self-authorizing thing for the flight, the limits were all very different for the Mackie. So, you know, maybe that would have worked out differently if I'd been flying to Strutmaster a bit more, don't know. Yeah. Uh, Another thing that came out was the number of turns it takes to recover. So the flight manual said after holding the recovery control inputs, the aircraft should recover after four turns, which it yeah. didn't. And a few of the old and bolds, you know, who'd been around a half year for 10, 20 years, whatever, said, oh, no, a strike master can take seven or eight turns to come out of a spin. But that's its not in the documentation. And one of those things you think, well, that'd be good sort of corporate knowledge to have for the guys that are doing maintenance test flying on the thing if not for everybody in a squadron tonight yeah yeah exactly um so there was still a bit of a word of mouth culture with the knowledge of the airplane types i think more so in the kiwi air force but at the same time having said that the rwf had a bad year for accidents that year as well one of which was a 707 crash off sale right. which killed a bunch of people Right, And that, that was the same sort of thing It was a lot of corporate knowledge Held amongst people but not documented Anywhere
0: Right, right.
1: And so that was something else that came out of the Inquiry on both sides of the Tasman <laughs> um, That all This sort of stuff needs to be written down And needs to be better known by everybody Involved um, So I think they were The major things that came out of it Really
0: Okay And um- what happened next for you? I mean, were you off work for a while or did you get back yeah, to well, into Yeah, well, it's funny. It or...
1: the, uh, the New Zealand Air Force just said basically take a week off and we'll, you know, go flying again next week type thing. But yeah. of course, the Australian Air Force found out about it <laughs> and yeah. they had a policy of no flying for three months after ejecting. Oh. The reason being, if your back was weakened, and as it turns out, I did have that back injury, yeah. if you had to eject again, with an already weakened back, you could do some serious damage.
0: Right.
1: So I had three months on the ground, which actually helped the cause of getting all the ground school preparation for the Mackie Pilots course done <laughs> in time. <So> my, <laughs> my work processing skills improved remarkably over that time. And coincidentally, during that three months, they had the last flight of the Strike Master. So I never flew a Strike Master again after that.
0: Ah oh, right, okay. All oh, right.
1: Yeah. Right. So the next time I went flying was in the Mackie, and did another six months or so before I went back to Australia.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um. So. Yeah. That's. I I do remember the. The accident, I was at Wigram at the time, and I kind of remember everyone saying, oh, well, they're being replaced anyway. We didn't need it, you know? Well, that's exactly <laughs> right. No one's really concerned about it. unless yeah. one
1: less I had to figure out what to do with, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> everyone, was happy
0: the that thing... that everyone was happy that the pilot survived it, but it didn't matter about the plane. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it was only a few weeks after there was a, an accident with a PC-9 back in Australia with the Kiwi oh, exchange yeah. pilot over there. Flying with another New Zealand Air Force guy in the back seat or front seat who ejected out of a PC 9, so there was a lot, of, a lot of joking suggestions that it was just payback, you know. <laughs> That's right, <laughs>
0: yeah, I remember that too. <laughs> yeah,
1: but it, the uh, the armorers were all really good afterwards because I think again, it was only a couple of weeks either just before or just after that, um, Scotty had ejected out of a. Guy Hawk over yep. there. Yep. And so, yeah, you know, the, all the gunnies and that were very happy that a couple of guys were still upright and breathing because of their work. And Scotty and I bought a few cartons of beer and went down and had a bit of a barbie at their hangar and had a good time down there.
0: Excellent. And of course, the yeah. the other ones involved in that is obviously my trade, S and S, the safety and surface guys. Uh, yeah. With a parachute, that we're always pleased with one of those works.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I heard um, the Pete Lindsay interview you did as well, talking about Mm -hmm. the Martin Baker Club and all that sort of stuff, which I never sent off for any of that sort of thing. They just find out about it through the reporting channel somehow. All right. And, uh, yeah, so I got the old Martin Baker stuff. And just a few years ago, it was probably 2018, my wife and I were on a holiday in the UK in London, and I'd heard that you could organise to do a tour of the Martin Baker factory, so via email arranged to do that and went out. And they were really good. They gave us a great tour. It was really interesting. And same thing, the guys that build the seats are always thrilled to have what they call a survivor yep. sort of walking through the building and helps keep them motivated.
0: Yeah, it would. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, so when you finished your exchange in 1993 and you obviously went back to Australia, um, what was what was next for you?
1: So I was posted to our central flying school, which is in East Sale. It's a RAF base at East Sale, which is a couple of hours east of Melbourne. And by then we'd finished flying to Mackie. They'd been replaced with the PC9, the Turbo Prop Tandem Seat Trainer. Yep. And so the job of the squadron there mainly is training other guys to become instructors.
0: Yep.
1: And so A flight does that and B flight Sort of as a standards checker for other instructors at all the other squadrons and also yep. the roulettes. So I did 18 months with the roulettes towards the end of that tour as well. All
0: right.
1: Yeah. So, okay. and that, and then in January 96, I resigned and ended up joining Qantas and did 25 years with Qantas. Yep. And then with the pandemic, obviously everything turned to worms there. And they actually offered redundancies. So I took a redundancy package. Um, it was effective the end of 2020, so 18 months or so ago. Yeah, finished okay. flying with them.
0: Okay. Mm. Yeah, yep. what were you flying with Qantas? What types?
1: Uh, I was lucky you got to fly a few types in no particular order. The older version 747, the, the classic they called it, which was yep. the SPs 200s and 300s, uh, the 767, the A330, and the 737. All right. Okay, cool. Yeah, it was a, it was a good life. Yeah. Not as much fun as the Air Force, but still a good life. <laughs> yeah.
0: Are you doing any recreational flying these days or are you still involved at all? Well, I
1: hadn't. I hadn't. But I'm just in the process of getting an instructor rating on my civil license because I'm not sure how it works in New Zealand, but military qualifications don't automatically carry over to a civilian license in Australia.
0: No. Right.
1: So I did get a lot of credits for what they call it recognition of prior learning. But I've had to jump through just a couple of hoops and hopefully I've got the last flight for that coming up this weekend. In fact, and okay. that'll give me an instructor rating, uh, not to do full time job, but I've, I was missing flying. So hopefully it be a way to do a little bit of flying and use a bit of that experience from the, the past career. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've been nice. enjoying it.
0: Mm. Yeah. But, um, I, I'm not actually aware. Uh, are there many? Australians who have ejected? Is there like a much bigger number than the New Zealanders who have ejected over the years? Oh, I
1: would say so, yeah. Especially when we had the mirages. Oh, they, yeah, that's uh, a good point. <laughs> I, I have heard <laughs> I, about that. They, most of them ejected out of a mirage. At yeah. one time <laughs> yeah. um, well, I couldn't give you a number, but no. yeah, it would be a lot. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It, it's amazing how many people around the world. So, from Martin Baker, you get a number of the uh, the Martin Baker Thai Club, they call it, and yeah. I was number 4,700 and something and right. that was back then and when yeah. we did the tour of the factory a few years ago, it's up around the sort of seven and a half, eight thousand 8,000 mark, I think.
0: Wow, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of those included F4s in Vietnam and that sort of thing, but there's still a lot of people, isn't it? That is. And that's only that is. Martin Baker, there's other yeah. manufacturers, of course.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wow.
1: Yeah.
0: Incredible. Yeah, well, um did did you sort of uh do you look back on the, the time you had in New Zealand with sort of um you know, that was a great time and, and that was a, oh, a, a yeah, really good experience. It was
1: fantastic. The the flying was really good. The country's spectacular compared to flying around Perth where it's dead flat and 35 degrees every day (laughs) so it's much more scenic flying around New Zealand and like I say without I'm not trying to make it sound patronising, but it it was like a big flying club everybody knew everybody and everyone was pretty tight and from a social side of things everyone was very welcoming to us I made my wife and I feel very welcome and if we were traveling around the country in our own time they'd make available theirs or their relatives batches and that sort of stuff yeah yeah we had a fantastic time over there it was really good Brilliant. and years later we took out two kids when they were younger for the old motorhome trip around the country just to show them what it was like
0: oh great excellent yeah. did, did, did you do any interesting sort of um exercises or anything while you were here
1: uh, yeah Roots the 14 squadron used to deploy once or twice a year on a thing called Falcon's Roost, where we'd yeah. basically pack up the squadron and operate out of a civil airfield somewhere. And I think the main reason for that was to give the transport and logistics guys experience in setting up tent cities, probably for disaster relief, things like earthquakes yeah. and flood relief. Yeah. So we'd rock up and there'd been a hercload or two precede us with all the tents and that sort of thing. And they'd set up a tent city for the squadron, which was probably... Oh, I'm guessing 30 or 40 people by the time you take in all the maintainers, the safety equipment guys, the pilots. Yeah, probably 30-odd people. Yep. And a mess tent and all that sort of thing. And so from memory, we, while well, I was there, went to Nelson. I can't remember if I've got the order, right? But Nelson, Okatuka, yep. Invercargill, Tauranga and... I think Gisborne up on okay. the northeast coast. So, so they were always great, and, and again, the locals loved it. Probably because a bit of a cash injection, all those people staying down there. Yeah. The local flight clubs used to let us use their facilities for briefing and whatever, and they were always very welcoming and enjoyed seeing the jets flying around. And a couple of times, I remember it in for We got roped into um, teaching them a bit of formation flying in their local air club aeroplanes they'd seen us zipping around in formation. and But it was a great way for me to see the country as a, a sort of paid visitor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Being braced in these other places and uh, getting to, to fly around and, and enjoy the scenery. It was really good. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And the students who were doing their flying training, it was a good challenge for them to operate at a somewhere different from their home base as well. Yeah, true, true.
0: Yeah, oh, well, um thank you very much for telling the story. I mean, it's one of those ones that I didn't know much about and uh, there's not much about on the internet or anything like that about this right. particular incident and uh, it's good to hear it firsthand. Thank you.
1: Yep, no problem at all and uh, great to talk to you. It's good to have the memories of New Zealand come up again and uh, thanks to your line of work <laughs> hey. making all the safety equipment work well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no worries. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.